Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 57, Timur. Now, welcome to 2018, and I really, really want to thank a lot of you listeners because uh, in the first kind of two weeks of this year, I've gotten, what is it, six new Patreon supporters. And that's, I think, besides when I first started and some of you who I guess were always interested in supporting jumped on, that is the, the quickest I've ever gotten new supporters before. And I really want to thank you all. And... Yeah, if there's something you you all want from me, think I can do better, ideas you have, do get in touch. It's always great to meet with you all. So I just want to thank Alexander Bukov, Ivan Ivanov, Nadia Grinberg, Vaughn Lockett, Stephen John, and Ivan Krumov. Thanks so much to all of you, and uh, I'll be in touch soon. So we left off in 1396 with the fall of the final bastion of the Second Bulgarian Empire, when Vidin was finally incorporated into the Ottoman Empire, and the last man who could really call himself Tsar, Ivan Stratsimir, was killed. All of this followed the disastrous Battle of Nicopolis, in which the supreme arrogance of the Western, mostly French knights, led to them being slaughtered on the banks of the Danube. In the wake of this conquest, Bulgarian intellectuals took the significant cultural gains of the about-to-expire 14th century to the far ends of their known world. These scholars ran to Moldova, Russia, Serbia, and Wallachia. Historian John Fine emphasizes that, quote, So many texts were brought to Russia after the fall of Bulgaria that scholars speak of the second South Slavic influence on Russia. These emigrant intellectuals often rose to high places as bishops and abbots in their new lands. They had a major impact on Serbian, Moldovan, Wallachian, and Russian letters. End quote. I also want to take this moment to mention something that happened a few decades earlier and that I only just uncovered on my research. Back in the 1360s and 1370s, also according to John Fine, Bulgaria, along with Hungary, expelled its Jewish population. Now, evidently, although Tsar Ivan Alexander's second wife had been Jewish, though she converted after her marriage, and Ternovol had an entire Jewish quarter, there were some serious tensions between those religious communities. Now, unfortunately, I really couldn't find details about just why the members of the Jewish community were ultimately expelled and why at this time it would appear that pressure from Orthodox establish, the Orthodox establishment kind of played a big part. But, I don't know, one point, this is, a, I think, a good time to point to something about the Ottoman Empire, uh, that it generally was pretty tolerant of religious communities as long as they were loyal members of the empire. Uh, there will be exceptions to this, definitely exceptions, and we'll talk about those as they arise. But overall, the Ottoman Empire was generally, I'd say, a lot more concerned with the empire part of its existence than the religious ones. And I think this is a really important point to kind of emphasize that 
really throughout Europe, generally, all these states, although they had a religious dimension to them, almost without fail, politics and power came first. And so my guess is that not to say that the the second Bulgarian Empire was somehow more bigoted or something than the Ottomans, not what I'm saying at all, but that at this particular moment in the 1360s and 1370s, the kind of power calculations of the second Bulgarian Empire uh, relative to you know the central state to its religious uh, component, they decided that they had to kind of acquiesce to what the Orthodox Church wanted. Whereas in the Ottoman Empire, you know, the Islamic community within the Ottoman Empire was much less kind of united. And ultimately, the Ottoman Sultan will get the title of Caliphate. And so because there wasn't as much of a kind of central religious authority to challenge the Sultan's power within the Ottoman Empire, you generally saw much more deference to the kind of imperial power side of the kind of calculating how to do things rather than doing things for religious reasons. And again, we'll explore that more as we go. Okay, now back to the time that we're discussing. While the fall of Vidin and the end of the Second Bulgarian Empire may mark a milestone for our story, for the Ottomans, it was another day and another conquest, with many more to come. In the wake of these events, the Ottomans were out for revenge on the powers which had challenged it. And so while countries like France, which of course supplied a large number of the knights uh, for the Battle of Nicopolis and that war, was too far away for the Ottomans to really do anything, Wallachia, who had also provided soldiers, was, well, right next door. And so a year after the Battle of Nicopolis, Bayezid crossed the Danube to invade Wallachia and punish them for supporting that crusade. But the Ottomans were repulsed. Though we have few details of the war, Still, it's remarkable that just as the Wallachians had done with the Hungarians on a number of occasions, they seemed very, very good at repelling invaders. That same year, the Ottomans continued the recent annual raids they'd been conducting in Morea and the Peloponnesus, also known as kind of the southern reaches of Greece, one of the last remaining areas under partial Byzantine control, although Venice also controlled many ports here. The Ottomans still hadn't conquered this area mostly because it was just chock full of fortresses. Therefore, the Ottomans were up to this point content to sort of raid the area and not take the significant time and resources it would take to completely conquer it. Now, the local despot actually attempted to place himself under Venetian sovereignty in order to gain more of kind of protection against those Ottoman raids. But the Venetians refused. They had no desire to provoke the Ottomans, and in fact, as the Ottomans took more territory, trading powers like Venice, Genoa, and the independent city of Dubrovnik, also often called Ragusa during this period, well, they all became less likely to support wars against the Ottomans, as they began searching for ways to strike trade deals with them. Ultimately, money was simply more important to these merchants than a kind of us versus them, you know, insiders versus outsiders, uh, Islam versus Christianity dichotomy. Again, if I'm going to refer back to what I was just talking about and the way in which the Ottomans and most of these European states really prioritized power over kind of any religious goals, this is just another example of that. That 
okay, you know, Venice and Genoa are Christian Catholic states, and they're not exactly happy about the Ottoman expansion, but ultimately they simply can't afford and literally afford in monetary terms to constantly be against the Ottomans and thereby shut themselves out of all of the economic markets of the Eastern Mediterranean that the Ottomans were slowly conquering. Now, Bosnia also faced a similar problem to the rest of the Balkans in the face of Ottoman advances. Following the death of its King Tvrto I in 1391, the Bosnian state continued to exist, but it was largely an illusion. In reality, Bosnia at this time was dominated by its noble class, who cooperated with each other and the erstwhile leader of Bosnia only when they felt like it. There was really no central authority. And as we've seen time and time again, this is the kind of environment in which the Ottomans thrive, pitting one noble against another, slowly acquiring vassals and annexing territories once vassalage is no longer kind of suiting their needs. King Sigismund of Hungary also couldn't resist the urge to expand that state's control over parts of northern Bosnia in light of this lack of central authority. So, much as had happened with Serbia, both Hungary and the Ottomans supported the weakening of their rival for the sake of their own expansion. But ultimately, the Hungarians would realize that allowing the Ottomans to expand so easily in this way was ultimately dangerous for themselves. But that realization would only come later, much again in the same way it did with Serbia. So you imagine you've got this buffer state between the Ottomans and the Hungarians, and it's in both their interest to make it weak so they can both expand. Uh, I kind of, you know, make, make the analogy of, say, Poland uh, at the beginning of the Second World War, where you had Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union both interested in weakening Poland and dividing it between them. But then once that happened, the Soviet Union realized that uh, actually maybe this wasn't the greatest idea because now they had an even more powerful Nazi Germany on their borders. It's quite similar to what's happening in Bosnia and what happened in Serbia. Okay, so in the meantime, while all this is happening in Bosnia, other contingents from the Ottomans are invading Wallachia again in 1397. But again, that invasion really went nowhere, as Merkea I was able to easily repulse their invasion. Another Ottoman incursion across the Danube three years later had a similar outcome. But still, all these were secondary Ottoman forces. The main army under Sultan Bayezid's personal command during these few years was busy in Anatolia. In 1397 and 1398, Bayezid conquered the territory of several Turkish beyliks. Remember, bey is a Turkish word for a kind of governor. Uh, so the Ottoman commander of Skopje, for example, was a bey. But a beylik can also be kind of small principality with a nobleman running it. So sometimes Bey refers to like an Ottoman official, a governor of some territory, but other times it refers to the leader of a small independent Turkish princely state in Anatolia. So when Bayezid got in and conquered these Beyliks, uh, one of those conquests violated a peace agreement with a man named Timur. Now, who was Timur? Briefly, he was part of a Mongolian tribe which had been affected 
and kind of influenced by Turkish culture and had more or less changed into a typical Central Asian Turkic tribe at this point in terms of language and culture and the way they governed themselves. Now, Timur was born into this clan in what's now Uzbekistan. He rose to power in Central Asia in the mid-14th century. And while he could not rule as a Khan because he was not descended from Genghis Khan, he did find someone who was willing to kind of be his puppet who was descended from Genghis. And so, yeah, this guy was officially the Khan, but everyone knew that Timur was really running the show. With this arrangement, he conquered Persia, parts of India, Afghanistan, and Mesopotamia. These conquests brought his growing empire into contact with the Ottomans. So when Bayezid conquered the lands of those Turkish beyliks, over which Timur had claimed sovereignty, in addition to rudely refusing Timur's demand to give him tribute, well, it ended in war in 1399. Now, at this moment, Timur simultaneously actually declared war on the Mamluks in Egypt and on the Ottomans, because he feared that the Mamluks would join the Ottomans uh, as well as their sultan because, well, the Mamluk's sultan had just died and been succeeded by their 13-year-old son. So the Mamluks were kind of weak they, and a bit unpredictable. So <clears throat> Timur saw this opportunity to both strike at the weak Mamluks and prevent the Mamluks and Ottomans from joining forces. Now, Timur at this moment had just finished an attack on Georgia and Armenia and was moving into Syria to sack Aleppo and Damascus. This meant taking Mamluk territory to cut off the land route between them and the Ottomans, again, making their cooperation much more difficult. By the time he was done all with all of this, it was 1402. Now, in the meantime, the despot of Morea, again, southern Greece, was handing over some fortresses to the Knights Hospitaller to, in order to get them to help against the Ottomans. Now, this really angered Bayezid, and so... When this uh, despot of Morea started to fortify the Isthmus of Corinth, which protected that southern Peloponnesus part of Greece from the other bit of Greece, Bayezid was focusing on his war with Timur and so tried to kind of reach an agreement over the issue. And ultimately they did, and the despot of Morea agreed to kick out the Knights Hospitaller and well, basically make himself more vulnerable to the Ottomans. Also in that same year, 1401, Sigismund of Hungary was actually overthrown and imprisoned by Hungarian nobles. Now, he eventually secured his release and went to Bohemia to gather an army to kind of better secure his position in Hungary. But in his absence, Hungary was weak and lost territory to various Croatian and Slavonian princes. And so while things are kind of progressing in Europe, Bayezid is off focusing on facing Timur. Um, so you imagine... You know, Hungary is a bit weak and in not such a great position. There's eh, Things are kind of a bit stagnant in Greece, but the Ottomans are really not doing very much in the Balkans during these early years of the 15th century. They're too, too busy in Anatolia facing Timur. And why were they so focused there? Because Timur had a fearsome reputation as really something of a butcher, and the Ottomans took his threat very seriously. Timur had created a massive empire in Central Asia and was not a man to take lightly. And so when Bayezid finally moves into Anatolia in 1402, he is ready to face this threat. 
both leaders amass enormous armies. Maybe around 140,000 for Timur, mostly Tatars and Turkic cavalry, along with some war elephants he picked up in India. And on the other side, about 85,000 Ottoman troops, which were a lot more diverse. There were elite Janissaries, vassal troops from places like Serbia, um, including a contingent of knights under Stefan Lazarevic, soldiers from Anatolian vassals, Albanians, and a significant number of recently conquered Tatars. Now, in addition to having a lot of different types of soldiers, several of these smaller forces as a part of the Ottomans were commanded by Bayezid's various sons. Now, the Ottoman army had also been taken from, had been kind of taken away from its ongoing siege of Constantinople in order to face Timur. And to do this, they had to really rush across Anatolia. As a result, the Ottoman forces were exhausted. Bayezid's advisors counseled a defensive position towards Timur, in which the Ottomans would conduct a fighting retreat into the mountains, forcing the Tatars to chase after them in the July heat and over ground which the Ottomans were much more familiar with. But Bayezid's pride would not allow this strategy. He and Timur had been insulting each other in letters, and so Bayezid felt that his honor simply would not allow a strategy like this. And so the Ottoman army rushed forward to fight Timur. But as they did this, Timur's army actually snuck around behind the advancing Ottomans, leaving them shocked by the maneuver and suddenly rushing backwards to combat Timur before he could move into Anatolia and devastate core Ottoman territories. This further exacerbated the exhaustion of the Ottoman troops, while Timur's troops, on the other hand, had plenty of time to rest. When the armies met, Timur's army attacked the Ottomans' flanks, one made up by Serbian knights and the other by Ottoman and Tatar cavalry under Prince Suleiman. While the Serbs held their own, the Tatar mercenaries on the right flank responded to this attack by changing sides and fighting with their brethren, and this led to a near encirclement of Prince Suleiman's right flank. Reinforcements rushed in to prevent a complete collapse in this area. In the meantime, Stefan Lazarevic was urging Bayezid to retreat as his Serbian knights desperately held off Timur's far larger force. But just as before, Bayezid refused. But soon, it became clear that the battle was turning decisively. The Sultan's sons began to retreat, saving both their lives and those of their soldiers. Whether this was on Bayezid's command is unclear. But without a doubt, these sons knew that the surviving heir would kill their brothers and become the new Sultan. And so, any fear that Bayezid might be killed in battle meant that each one of his sons had to quickly switch into survival mode and prioritize saving his own force over winning the battle. Once his flanks collapsed, Bezid retreated to a hill and was surrounded by Timur's forces as his sons and Stepan Lazarevich escaped. He, along with his personal guards, janissaries, and other forces, fought bravely, and the Sultan nearly escaped, but an arrow killed his horse, and Bezid the lightning bolt became the first Ottoman sultan to be captured. He was held in a cage by Timur and died about a year later off in Central Asia. One of his sons was captured along with him while the other four escaped, triggering a civil war that would determine who would sit on the throne after. 
Now, John Fine cites his colleague Rudy Linder's analogy about these two leaders, Timur and Bayezid, meeting on the battlefield as something akin to an all-star college football team coming against a professional champion team. Bayezid may have steamrolled his opponents up to this point, but his forces fought as separate units without much overall cohesion and coordination. And if you contrast this with the well-oiled war machine of Timur, it's simply, there's simply no kind of uh, comparison. And so yes, Bayezid was a fearsome opponent in the Balkans and in Anatolia, an area which simply had no large kind of empires, large armies to challenge him. But Timur's teeth had been cut fighting in Central Asia against enormous enemies uh, and very battle-hardened enemies. And so Timur's army was just way, way, I don't know, sort of fighting on a completely different level than uh, that of Bayezid. And so I think that's an apt analogy by Linder. Ultimately, in many ways, it was this lack of cohesion, as well as the incentive for Bayezid's sons to flee and save themselves, which seemed to have contributed to this crushing Ottoman defeat. As the sons of the Sultan were preparing for the coming civil war, Timur advanced all the way to the Aegean coast of Anatolia. He laid siege to Smyrna, modern Izmir. The city had been captured on crusade in 1344 and was controlled by the Knights Hospitaller. The city was taken after a brutal siege. Now, this did raise the possibility of an anti-Timur crusade on the part of of the West, as the Knights Hospitaller were a Western military order. But the West was ultimately too happy that Timur had weakened the Ottomans, and they knew that, you know, considering the bulk of Timur's empire was so far away in Central Asia, that he was ultimately far less of a threat to them than the Ottomans themselves. And so even though Timur did kind of dealt this blow to the West in Smyrna, in the end, they were willing to take that blow to get a different, uh, a kind of a different enemy than the one that they were familiar with. And now to prove this, following the conquest of Smyrna, once he had installed Bayezid's son Mehmet as the new Sultan of the Ottoman Empire and restored the independence of the Anatolian Beyliks, who were the reason for the war in the first place, Timur did what the West hoped, and he returned to his capital in Central Asia to celebrate his victory and prepare for his next move, an invasion of China. He died on the way to China in 1404. His death sparked violent infighting amongst his surviving family members, thus removing the danger of further attacks from his empire and allowing the Ottomans to basically conduct their civil war without being bothered by the descendants of Timur. So, thinking broadly about the Battle of Ankara, this huge battle that the Ottomans had just lost, did it mean that the Ottomans were about to decline? Well, no. The Ottomans did lose significant territory in Anatolia, but the Battle of Ankara really did little to affect their European holdings. Well, but why? The reason for this really comes down to the decentralized nature of the Ottoman state. And while that decentralization was a disadvantage in the Battle of Ankara itself, it was now an advantage when it came to recovering from that battle. This is because the Ottoman Empire just wasn't very centralized. Individual governors ruling various provinces had long conducted raids or even outright conquest completely on their own. We've seen this time and time again. 
This meant that each of these local rulers within the Ottoman Empire had their own soldiers, their own power bases, and could operate independently from the Sultan. So, when the Sultan's son, Suleiman, returned to Europe, he very quickly control, took control over the Ottoman administration there, an administration that kept right on running even as the Sultan was captured. Now, true, if the West had mounted a major attack on the Ottomans just at this moment, things could have been very different. Much of the core Ottoman army had been lost. But as we know, following the disaster at Nicopolis, there was no appetite for such an attack on the part of the West. They had just so recently lost so many of their forces, and even though the Ottomans were so weak at this moment, there was no way they were going to fight. And so, just when the Ottoman Empire was at its weakest, the West was content to give it space and time to recover. Now, one example could be found back in Morea in southern Greece. Following the Ottoman loss at Ankara, the despot there tried even harder to get rid of the Knights Hospitaller. The weakened power of the Ottomans meant that, well, he wasn't really facing any more of those devastating raids, and so his whole reason for bringing the Knights there wasn't there anymore, and he wanted them out. Eventually, they agreed to leave in exchange for a large cash payment. It took a few years, but by 1404, the peninsula was more or less in Greek hands again. So the absence of Ottoman raids, while its empire dealt with its civil war, didn't mean that outside pow uh, powers really conquered so much Ottoman territory, but it did give its neighbors breathing room to fix internal problems. And we'll see that also in places like Serbia. Now, during those years, after fleeing the Battle of Ankara, the surviving sons of Bayezid established themselves in various cities throughout the Ottoman domains and prepared to fight each other for sole control of the empire. Now, again, they didn't care too much that Timur had decided that Mehmed was going to be the new sultan. No one was going to listen to Timur now that he was far away in central Anatolia and then dead. And so they just decided to carry on with the civil war anyways. The eldest son, Suleiman, set himself up in Edirne. The second eldest, Isa Celebi, in the former capital of Bursa. And the supposed Sultan Mehmet in the Anatolia city of Amasya. Stefan Lazarevich, for his part, escaped the Battle of Ankara with quite a few of his Serbian knights still alive. And upon returning home, he was received by Emperor Manuel II of Constantinople and granted the title of despot. He returned, however, to a Serbia that was still divided, as his nephew had tried to undermine him in his absence by sort of allying with the Ottomans against him. Local Ottomans, again, remember, you know, Stevan may have been fighting with Bayezid off somewhere, but there were still local governors who were willing to kind of bend the rules a bit in order to extend their influence in Serbia. Now, there are some reports that Stefan Lazarevich was at this time really attempting to use this moment to reassert Serbian independence. But the first thing he really had to do was deal with this challenge by his nephew, who again was willing to work with the Ottomans to position himself within Serbia. At the same time, as I mentioned before, Sigismund had recently been imprisoned, and so as he got out, he was desperately looking for allies that could help him reassert his authority. He offered a deal to the Archduke of Austria that if Sigismund died without a male heir, the Archduke would be his heir and inherit everything. But he also came to Stefan Lanzarovich and made a deal and gave him Belgrade and other territories in exchange for becoming a Hungarian vassal. 
Now, wait a minute. Uh, how did this work out if, if Stefan was already an Ottoman vassal? Well, it seems that, again, when his nephew had allied with some of the Ottomans in order to gain control of uh, what remained of Serbia as an Ottoman vassal, this basically put Stefan on the opposite side of a small internal war with the Ottomans. And so he really no longer felt he had any obligations towards them. So that's what he did. He became, uh, well, just after he defeated a Serbian Ottoman force in 1402, at this moment, he felt confident that uh, the Ottomans, well, being in their civil war, weren't about to go in and reassert control and that they had kind of betrayed him anyways. And so after this win for him in 1402, in 1403, he became a Hungarian vassal. He made Belgrade his capital, reinforced its fortress, and set up a far more independent Serbia for the first time in decades. So this leaves us with some questions. How is this going to work out for Serbia? How will the Ottomans respond to his abandoning his vassal kind of a relationship with the Sultan? And more importantly, what is going to happen in this Ottoman civil war? There are four sons of Bayezid establishing themselves throughout the empire and getting ready to fight each other. And so how long this war will go on and how it will impact the Ottoman expansion as well as the territories they already control. Will Bulgaria have any opportunities to reassert itself in light of this weakening of central power in the Ottoman Empire? Well, next time, we're going to answer those questions. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was performed and written by Teddy Raven. As always, uspech, or in English, good luck.